0: Welcome back to The Church Podcast, where we learn about one historical figure or event or many events, investigate the Bible, and make a theological statement. Let's talk church. Let's talk about theology. Let's talk about historical theology, and let's talk about the church. A few things I want to, as always, thank my friends who are cheering me on to do this podcast and put my thoughts and my ideas out there. I uh, we'll encourage you to write a review. Engage in that way. Write a review. Uh, there's many, many platforms that this podcast is on, um, but we get more play, we get our name more out there, and we get the message of the podcast more out there the more that you engage. So whether it's a good po- a good uh, uh, comment or one that say, I don't know if I should write that, write it. Help us understand what we're doing, help us know what we can do best, and we can also hear um, what this podcast is doing in your life and in your understanding of the Bible. Well, we are part two into a three-part podcast series called Gilgamesh and the Flood. In this series, what we are doing is we are outlining how it is important to understand or at least take into consideration Near Eastern Histories. Now, Near Eastern history would be the study of people groups, geography, um, the comings and goings of kingdoms, emperors, etc., in the areas in which the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and further in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, but we're specifically talking about Genesis, where the events of Genesis take place. So the events of Genesis don't take, plake, it's pl- take place in a vacuum. They take place in a very real time and place. And we have the ability to study that time and that place, which helps us understand what's in the text. Reading the Bible is sufficient. Uh, it is the Word of God. It's a special re- revelation. But I think we would be remiss to not... have a a concern would be the wrong word, but have an excitement to understand what was going on around those events that are taking place in the Bible. After all, the Bible is not a history book. The Bible is a theology book about God and his story and who he is and how he provides redemption and how he gets glory. But the Bible does that through talking through very real historical events. So we're able to, as Christians look and see what else was happening. This is all called context. Now, Webster defines context as circumstances that form from the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which it can be fully understood and assessed. Understanding context is key to most situations we are assessing even in our personal lives and what's going on in our world today. History must be viewed in this context. Now, the further back history is being studied, the more intentional the search for context has to be. Human beings can actually detect context all the time. When facts are thrown at us through a 24-hour news cycle or social media outlets, context, even in those, even in that information that comes in, should be brought into the conversation what context is this story in what context is this quote in what context is this individual being spoken of and many times this, this does not happen and part of that is because the, in the western world we tend to look at every historical event through our own cultural realities this is just how it is we even do this as far as as americans and uh, other countries in the west we just think this is how it is. This, is. this is the type of homes people have. This is the type of lifestyle people have. This is the type of relationships people have. And being ignorant to the fact that that is not the context that every person lives in. And historically, we can't think of events and, and put ourselves, and this is exactly what I would do, but we have to understand that there is a context. But it makes sense that this is difficult. There's a fear of context. Sometimes cultural context makes people feel very uncomfortable. Um, With any modern progressive thinker, which you probably are, studying the ancients, ancients of any area, but we're talking specifically the Near Eastern ancients, it can make you nauseous as you read about the prevalence of human sacrifice, slavery, conquest, treatment of women, children, and it just makes you feel as though context in their context was just, 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 just an ocean of human rights violations today. And this makes it hard to objectively study any ancient people group, but we have to understand what's going on. Now, this is this does not excuse the things that are horrific and horrendous, um, but it does cause us to think about why were those things happening now we have to consider this because when it comes to the bible re- readers may fear that if they dig too deep in the context that i'm talking about in the history especially old in the old testament it will make them impossible to see god as good it'll make them impo- it'll make it impossible to defend the god of the bible meaning they they don't want to get into the messiness of the old testament because they read see things that all this types all this stuff that's going on and it it's, it's just easier to jump into the book of matthew in the new testament and read about jesus and but the thing is, is Jesus is, is the, the context of the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament, so he understands context. So we should too. We should not fear. We should not fear looking into the context of the Old Testament. There is an ignorance of context, though, almost on purpose. Many times when a person reads or studies ancient history, rather than ignoring context on purpose, They're just unaware of it. Now, we could spend time getting down into the nitty-gritty of what context is. I want to just show you a couple um, examples of context. There's literary and there's cultural context. That I think is important to know whenever we're reading a text specifically. Um, So those things both need to be observed. Literary Literary and cultural context must be considered when studying any ancient text, actually. It cannot be overstated that ancient texts need to be read and studied knowing what genre they are. Genre determines whether a piece of writing is a poem, a collection of wisdom, a biographical narrative, or a historical book. And that's not to say that some of those, those uh, headings or those, those types don't intertwine at times. But usually you can label a section to say this is primarily what this is. Um, in his book, Interpreting Eden, Interpreting Eden uh, Vern Poitras, Vern S. Poitras, great book, Interpre- Interpreting Eden, if you're ever interested in, in kind of an in-depth study of kind of what I'm talking about, um, Poitras devotes an entire chapter to the explanation of genre as it has to do with the book of Genesis. And it's incredible because it helps you kind of understand the different types and it's almost like a a beautiful tapestry that happens in the book of Genesis that Moses writes. Um, He acknowledges that genre can be fuzzy at times, like I said, especially in stories that have been passed down through with oral traditions. So you may have history that is passed down through an oral tradition, but it's passed down through a poem that quite generally, um, has been put into song or poetry to help the oral traditions remember what is being said. So a song that we're singing about what happened, it helps kind of lock things in and help people remember as the details are tied to melodies and uh, melodies rhythm and rhyming. I mean, much of the confusion in reading origin stories is an inability to distinguish between genres, this can be seen in um, the Norse, the Norse uh, Norse mythology uh, in their creation of the world um, and what they think happened. It can be seen in the Greeks stuff the Romans. Romans basically stole from the Greeks. You could see it through the Assyrians, different groups that were in general. It's hard to say: is this myth or is this not myth? Um, based on what gen- genre this is, if it's poetry, is it also history? And the Bible is made up of a multitude of genres, specifically even the book of Genesis has multiple genres. And it must be understood that some of the genres do overlap, such as historical poetry. This is very important. For example, Genesis chapter 1 would be an example of this kind of a text. Um, literary context serves as a roadmap to understand ancient texts, including the Book of Genesis. Um, and with that roadmap, we can look back to Genesis chapter one. And it would be uh, foolish for us to say it's just a poem; therefore, it's not historical. And if you translate from the original Hebrew, you can see that that the rhythm, uh, the the, um, the rhythm of poetry is definitely there. But to say because it's poetry, it is not history would be um, would be a mistake based on looking at how texts were written around the Near Eastern time and uh, and even what is also uh, written in, in Genesis as well. But understanding cultural context, outside the literary context, there's a cultural context, or rather a part of it, is a crucial skill. You need to understand that when studying Genesis or any ancient text. Texts are from different cultures, and different cultures are like like music. Okay, So listening to some types of music will take your mind to a different part of the world, and that part of the world in which it was written. Um, the Norse wrote different from the Celts, and the Aztec wrote differently from the Assyrians or the Babylonians. After the conquest of Alexander the, Great, Alexander the Great, Greek culture, including language, influenced every people group from Europe to northern Africa to the steppes of India. The Greek influence remained strong into the rise of an absolute power of the Roman Empire. But as I said before, the Romans stole a lot of their um, their mythology and some of them their actual religion. Um, from the the Greeks. They just basically took what the Greeks did and they gave them new, new names. Um, the original languages in which the Bible is written, they show evidence of the Greek influence among both the Jews and the early church. For example, the Old, the Old Testament was written in ancient Hebrew while the New Testament was largely written in common Greek. While the early Jewish influence is clearly evident in the Old Testament and into the Gospels, the Greek influence shows up in both The writing and the cultural norms of the early church as it expanded and as it grew. So we need to understand that when we're reading scripture, the time that it's written, the places in the world it's written, actually any any text, you know, not just any ancient text, not just scripture, not just the Bible. We understand where it was written, by whom it was written, the religions of the time, the customs of the time. who was in power at the time. If we don't know these things, it's hard for us to understand exactly what's going on um, in the text. One thing I love about the Bible, though, it is unique in the sense that it is, well, the biblical text is different from its surrounding cultures and also similar. It's similar in the sense that Genesis was written in a real time among real people. And as we talked about, Many cultures allow for their adherence to blur the lines between fact and myth. We've talked about that. We've mentioned several times the Greek pantheon. It's kind of like, well, did they believe it? Did they not? Well, surely some, but also we even now kind of allow for it to be myth, but is it real? Well, The Bible doesn't really do that. It, it, it claims itself as being real. And Genesis acts as such as it's uh, laid out as well. Even with debate over the interpretation of several passages, no serious reader of Genesis could conclude it was written with any other intention except fact- a factual account of what really happened. The text speaks to itself. This is what happened. The author is, is not writing myth. He, he believes Moses, as a writer, he believes he is writing fact. For the example of an ancient text, here's an ancient text that's called Imuna Elish, Enuma Elish, and it shares many attributes of Genesis, specifically one through thirty-eight. It tells the tale of Marduk's rise to be the ultimate god in the Babylonian pantheon, but A close reading of this Sumerian text differs from Genesis in that details concerning the god, Marduk, are clearly purposefully mythical or at least written with little or no detail. A precursor to gods like Zeus, Marduk ascends to be the most powerful of all gods. The reader is left to question the humanity and divine nature of Marduk because these are not laid out. Marduk is to be worshipped, but it is unclear how one is to divide their worship between Marduk and the rest of the pantheon of gods that surround Marduk. Now contrast this with God of the Bible, the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis. He is, as described by Moses, he is, he always was, he does not ascend, because he's already there there's no pantheon of gods he's not created and everything else is by him the god in genesis is clearly the one to worship he wants worship he deserves worship there are no other gods where the story of marduk leaves ambiguity for the reader moses clearly defines what he believes God is, and who he is conveying God to be. So on the surface, there are similarities between the God of the Bible and the God of the other Near Eastern civilizations like Marduk. But upon looking closer, we start to see differences. Marduk ascends, and he's already there over all things. And what we begin to see is that Historically, God stands out, the God of the Bible stands out with such differences in how he is portrayed and written about that any careful reader would think to themselves, Why would this one God that is described in this one ancient piece of writing, Genesis, look so different? from every other god or pantheon of god in the context, in his context. Let me think about it. If Moses is writing about a god in the context that he has, is what he sees, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, or the, the, the Sumerians, rather, and What is he going to do? If he's making a God up, well, chances are he's going to pull different parts of a he, he sees and he knows about and civilizations around him and he's going to put together a God. But instead, we have a monotheistic God that is completely different in the sense that he is one God, he is the only God, and he is over all things. To say it bluntly, to build a God into a text, if Moses were saying, I want to say, make up a God and put him into the, into, into the writings of Genesis, into the Pentateuch, it would almost be offensive to come up with a God like that. But after all, that is how God is. God is an offense to any other form of God that would be written about or concocted by somebody. But just to kind of just mention Gilgamesh, and we'll talk about him a lot in the third part of this. Basically, we need to understand that, you know, any conversation with a skeptic of Christianity, if they've read anything, they'll bring up Gilgamesh in the epic. It's actually what it's called, the Gilgamesh epic as proof that the flood account in Genesis is fabricated or stolen. So we were talking about God. Now we're talking about just the stories of Genesis. They'll bring that up to say Moses stole this story. And granted, there are a lot of similarities, although there are similarities such as God's creation, the anger for humanity, and then the flood In reality, the epic is not the only text that has been discovered with parallels to the early events of Genesis. Most notably with the flood, in 1974, clay tablets containing writings that were similar to both Genesis and the Epic of Gilgamesh were discovered. They were found in what is modern northern Syria. The tablets were dated around 2,500 B.C. Now immediately, of course, these were hailed as a find that would challenge the Genesis account. So therefore, Genesis doesn't make any sense because there's some similarities here. In reality, they actually held very little information and became useful to language specialists and archaeologists but less to theologians and people trying to figure out exactly what was going on as far as the 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 religious outcomes of the te- of what they found there just wasn't enough information to cause a stir and that's happened with a lot of archaeological finds there's a little bit but not quite enough to pull what we need but as with, with as with most of the ancient research findings um they didn't prove events wrong but they did build convincing arguments that a flood did take place. Now, there is the idea that, well, if there was a flood that is is written about from another um, author, then maybe Moses must have stolen the flood story. What makes more sense would be that if multiple Near Eastern writings talk about a flood story, then something must have happened. And if something must have happened, then the conversation is not about whether there is a flood. It was, It is why there was a flood and the details within the context of the flood. So the argument is less about the flood. Flood becomes a context, and then we begin to talk about what happens with the flood as the backdrop. Now one of the things I want to do to wrap up our time together is to, to, to show you a, or to give you an example of what happens when we are able to see God in context. Next time we come together, I will be spending time talking about, I think, three or four different specific flood stories compare them piece by piece to um, the account in genesis of Noah and the flood. Gilgamesh's epic will be one of them, but there will be others as well. And again, what we will find is historically, we will find that the flood becomes the backdrop. There's so much similarity, but what we have to look for is what are the one or two things that are different. And just spoiler alert, What we will find is that you will have four or five stories that almost have every detail exactly the same, except the interaction between God and man, the interaction between God and himself, and how that God is portrayed. So within the context of the flood, I'm not going to argue that there's not other accurate writings about the flood from other religious books, but I am going to argue that the God of the Bible is very different than every other God in these other accounts. In fact, I will argue that they are the same and he is different. Now, there's a star in the sky and I have children and I told one of my children that that's your star. And, um, and, and on a very clear night, I'll hold my my child and, and, and we'll look up and you'll see a very shiny, shiny star. It's one that's probably a planet. It's just so blatantly shiny. You walk out of my house and look to the right. It's right there every single night. It doesn't matter unless it's cloudy and you can't see it. Now, one time, uh, I went out with uh, my my child, and uh, um, and my child said, "How come I can't see the stars when it's daytime?" And I said, "Well, it's it's daytime; it's not nighttime." See, what happens is the uh, when the sun goes down, the sun is not distracting us from the night sky, and you can see this incredible star come through. This is why we have to think about context. This is why this is so important for cultural context, for literary context. And I know in these podcasts, I just touch the surface and I just talk about stuff. And it, it, it's, I'm just trying to encourage you to, to consider things that are very, very important and to dig deeper on your own. But just like the star, just like the sunny day and then the star, we need to understand that most of the time in our lives, it's as though we are walking around on a sunny day and we are completely, if we look up in the sky, sky, all we see is the sun. All we see is the clouds. All we see is the things that are actually closer to us in the atmosphere. We see clouds, the blue sky. But then at night, at night, those things clear and we see the vastness of space and in that context in the context of having clarity of just space in general we see just like my just like my child star we see a star that's bright And it shines and we see it compared to the other stars. We see it in the dark night. We see it right there. And my challenge to you is this. My challenge is that don't allow your personal life, which is just full of things. And maybe they're all good things, but they're so full of things that you're not able to step out When the sky is clear, when your life is clear, when things are to to have clarity, to get your mind focused on scripture, to sit down and let everything kind of float away. Because here's the thing. If you are not able to focus and put God into the context of the vastness of who he is and all you are doing is focusing in on the clouds and the sun and what's in front of me, you will never ever understand the beauty of how clear he shines in all of creation. That's what we see in Scripture. That's what's so incredible. In Isaiah 46.9, the Bible says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me so why do we why do we want to clear the clouds and 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 see god as in the night sky compared to all the other stars because we will understand that he is the brightest why do we want to look at our uh, look at context because we understand that the more historical context we have the brighter he will become the more we we Look into the history of Near Eastern cultures, and we see some of the horrific things that are taking place, and how they viewed religion, and how they viewed each other, and how they 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 clung to and made sacrifices to gods that gods that needed them, and that were half man, half god, and and all of this cultural stuff. We need to know that because when we know that, and then we compare that to this God, we know. Than the former things of old. The Bible talks about the current, now, and the future. He says, I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Now, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to every so often wait. Wait for the clouds to clear, wait for the sun to go down, and wait till you're looking up into the vastness of space. And remember that when space is full of stars that you see, that's when you see that God shines the brightest.